This is S.T. Cavatelli, author of The Fall, Book One, Conversion, and Book Two, Reversion, and you're listening to Andrew Hall's Dead Hand Radio. This is Andrew Hall. My guest for this episode is Steve Campitelli, better known on Twitter as S.T. Campitelli. Steve is a writer of science fiction and post-apocalyptic stories. He lives in Australia where he is an educator and a family man. I first met ST on Twitter and we've been exchanging post-apocalyptic tweets for a couple years. On this episode of Dead Hand Radio, ST and I talk about his experiences as a child of the 70s, growing up during the Cold War, and what that was like living in Australia. We also talk about his writing and how it was influenced by events that he experienced during the Cold War, such as the Vietnam War, the destruction of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany, and ultimately the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's an interesting journey inside the mind of a post-apocalyptic writer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm doing real well. Thanks for having me on, bud. Yes. Appreciate you being here. So you're from Melbourne, and I was looking at it on a map, and it looks like a very densely populated city. Oh, it is. Yeah. So 85% of the population is on is on the, 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 the eastern and southeast coast. Yeah. So you've got Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria. Then you've got Sydney, which is the capital of New South Wales. And Victoria is sort of in your in your bottom right corner, if you like, of Australia, uh, not Tasmania. So it's the bottom right corner of mainland Australia. And then New South Wales is just above it. So like most of the population is in those two states. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. And then you've got Queensland above that, also on the East Coast, but that's sort of semi to, to tropical. So it's it's a really weird. Then most of the inland is, is quite dry. So... Uh, not a huge number of people live inland. So, you, I mean, it's a population of 23 million. It's not tiny, but uh, it's not, not not like the states where it's fairly spread. So the entire population of the country is 23 million? Yep, that's right. Okay. And the population of Melbourne itself is about 5 million, right? Uh, Melbourne is, I think, around 4. And Victoria as a state is 5. And New South Wales, I think, is about six or seven. So there, you know, that those two states form half the population of the country. Got it. Well, yeah. I, I don't mind if we spend a couple more minutes talking about Australia because I've never really spoken to anybody there other than you and I chatting on the on the Twitter. Mm. Um, and it's a it's kind of an interesting place because, like you said, it is uh, fairly sparsely populated but when you look at you look at pictures of you know the most common areas melbourne and mm. um, some of the other places that you named i mean they are really densely populated so it looks like a, a, you know looks like it's overflowing with people but you've got such a large landmass mm. um and there's there's so much open space out there yeah there is do you ever uh, have an opportunity to venture outside the city and s- explore some of those areas? 
Oh yeah, yeah. So um, I haven't done much looking, uh, much exploring of what they call the outback. You know that that sort of image of Australia that you see in um, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about <laughs> later because you know of my fascination with it, but um, sort of that, that dusty um, red soil um, look right in the dead centre of Australia. I haven't, I haven't done much of that, but I certainly have um, been outside of Melbourne and explored around Australia lots of times by car because it's fantastic. It's a great place to, to look around and explore. It's, it's full of really super diverse landscapes from you know rainforest to that sort of that classical outback look so it's it's really diverse and when we were little we had friends who lived up in um a place called <laughs> these sort of places are so typically australian the australian named underbull which is a sort of a it's an aboriginal name a lot of place names if you scan a map of australia you find a lot of the place names um are aboriginal which is a, a, a um, one thing we've done right by our indigenous um, our population uh, amongst a lot of things we're, we haven't done right um, and in that place up in Underbull it's about gee, it's about 550 kilometers north west of Melbourne that's really dry it's remote um, a lot of wheat farms up there um, you know, think Iowa or um, those sort of places, but super dry, right? Sort of Iowa combined with Nevada, maybe. And um, that's that that place formed such an impression on me because it is sort of red soil, very remote, dusty, typical Australian outback. And that's where I set the prologue for um, my first book um, and actually my second book. So both of the first and second books open with their scenes set in, in, in that place, right? Um, so that was a really uh, a good link for me within my own books um, to that place. Um, so in answer to your question, yeah, I have. I've done a fair bit of traveling. I've been right over to Perth, which is, um, I think at one stage was, uh, Perth was the most remote capital city of a state in the world <laughs> um, in terms of its geographical distance to the next uh, it's the nearest other capital city. Do you know what I mean by that? From one city to the next, there's right, there's right. quite an open space expanse between there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a long way away. I mean, it still is a long way away. I don't know if it still holds that title. If it's worth having such a title, but yeah, I've um, heard yeah. of it. I haven't I haven't looked into where it's located or population or anything like that. Is it a fairly big town or city? Perth is a city of a couple of million. Um, it's a beautiful city. They've got great weather. It gets very, very, very hot in the summer. But the, the, I, I went over there by bus when I was about um, 18. And that trip is like 43 hours by, um, I shouldn't say bus, it's coach. Uh, you know, those interstate um, coaches. And it goes across the Nullarbor. So um, I think something, a place which would be of great interest to you specifically, because I know how much you love photographing um, desert and um uh you've probably heard of places like kalgoorlie and kubapiti kubapiti is a, a very famous um gem mining town where they, a lot of people live underground another place i'm sure would fascinate you and uh that's called the nullarbor so that that stretch of road across from adelaide which is the capital of south australia over to perth which is the capital of western australia that is the longest stretch of um any railway track with no bends in it, it is straight right yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Um, and that trip over is uh, fascinating because that, that area is, is hot, it's, it's dry, it's desert, 
yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I do love the desert. Um, yeah, I know you do. I love your I love your pictures, man. I oh, think thank you. you. Take, I appreciate oh, that. I do. I do. You do. Um, I love it when you post those uh, pics of Nevada you take, and you again diverse landscapes, and you, you seem to find some really interesting angles to them too. I'm I'm lucky to be in such a such a location that has so many different mm. environments surrounding it. I mean, lake, uh, desert, mountain, you know, all kinds of different areas to, to explore over here. Yeah. The, the, the one thing that I don't like doing is driving and, okay. uh, getting outside of the city and going anywhere outside of Las Vegas is going to take, three to four hours in any direction to get to the next significant sized city. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't leave the city too often. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, there's, there's plenty to do here that I don't have to go anywhere, but um, yeah, if I, if I had a choice of going, <clears throat> going over to the coast or spending the weekend here, I'd stay right here. Okay. <laughs> at the coast is about a four or five hour drive from here. Oh, I didn't realize it was that far. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, you know, with the COVID thing right now, nobody's traveling anyway. Mm. Yeah. And right. right now we're getting so inundated with smoke from the California fires that uh, air quality is pretty unhealthy just about anywhere you go. Oh, yeah, of course. You hear, have yeah. you heard anything about those fires that uh, I have. California? Yeah. 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 I have because um, my brother lives in San Francisco. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And he sent me a picture about a week ago and it was 11 a.m. in the morning and it was, the sky was red and it looked, it looked like one of our post-apocalyptic Friday pictures. You know what I'm, I mean, I'm not joking about it. It really did look, look uh, like that. And um, yeah, I have Andrew. It's, it's, and we know of course a lot about bushfires here. We had shocking ones early in the year. So I, I really, really empathize when it comes to bushfires. Yeah, that, that does, yeah, you guys had the worst fire season I've ever heard of. Um, yeah. Was it earlier? Was it um, was it earlier this year, or was it the end yeah, of? Yeah. Okay, I thought yeah. it was the end of last year. Um, no, it Those, was. Uh, there was over like a billion acres or something. It was incredible. So that's yeah. when it goes back to what we were talking about before about the size of the country. Um, right. And. Uh, it was huge. It was something like that. And we lost a lot of wildlife. Right. Um, of course, the, the fauna, the, the plants grow back, but you know, the wildlife loss was quite devastating. And, and of course, to businesses. And then COVID came on the back of that. So you had the bushfires, which were sort of internationally recognized as being a disaster and a lot of money was coming in for them. And, and I feel so sorry for those people because after COVID hit, it was sort of like, you know, that got pushed to the back burner. Wow. Um, a bit of yeah. So they're still still recovering from Absolutely. that devastation. What what part of Australia was that? I know it encompassed uh, a huge swath uh, of the country, but yeah, Northern Victoria, New South Wales. That's sort of the a lot of bushland. So we're not talking about the sort of inner part of Australia where there's not so many huge tracts of forest. It, it's more sort of areas of New South Wales, uh, Victoria. South Australia um, get them, and so do Queensland. So they're, they're the bushfire zones. Um, and when it gets, when you combine really high heat um, with windy conditions, that's when you get your really bad bushfire uh, yeah. conditions. Yeah, I think in 
in uh, comparison, the California fires, which are stretching up into into Oregon now also, yeah. I think those have encompassed maybe a couple of million acres, which is huge. Still, That's a, still huge, a lot, right? Yeah. 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 But yeah. it's nowhere close to that fire that uh, Australia had to endure. Oh, yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. So, um, so you are, I mean, I, I've only gotten a little bit of background off of the internet about you. So you're an educator according yeah. to the website about your book. Yeah. Is it, does that mean you're like a professor at a university or <laughs> high school teacher? <laughs> Not quite. No. So, okay. So, um, I've been in the university system in Australia for 25 years now. So I worked at, um, I've worked at two universities, one called RMIT, which is um, in Melbourne, and the second one for the last 10 years called the University of Melbourne, which is a, a pretty good university um, as far as, you know, ranked universities in Australia and uh, go. Um, so I work with a group that um, works with directly with students and staff on um, uh, uh, training them, assisting, supporting with um, what we call academic skills. So, you know, how to write academically, um, how to present uh, to an academic uh, audience, um, how to negotiate academic texts. So uh, I've been in education all my working life um, and last quarter of a century, gee, when you say it like that, uh, last quarter of a century um, in the university system, yeah. Yeah, uh, and also something that I just recently learned is that you're in your 50s already. I didn't, yeah. I, th I thought you were in your early 30s maybe maybe <laughs> 40 uh, uh mid 50s man uh, uh, i'm right uh, there with you i was born in 66 so we're about oh the same okay age. Yeah. we are contemporaries then yeah exactly all right that's why you get all my pop culture references i see <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i grew up same year different part of the world <laughs> yeah great Excellent. or we were we were born a year apart but we grew up in the same era and, oh, uh, when, when you're this age, you're a part of nothing. Yeah. So we, yeah. We're, we're, we're children of the seventies, you and I, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, I have some pretty vivid memories about certain aspects of the cold war when I was five, six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, okay, well, first of all, I'll just ask you what, what do you remember specifically around from that era, like the five to 10 years old range? Yeah, I've been really thinking about it since we sort of first started talking about coming on the podcast. And the more I thought about it, the more I sort of thought, gee, I did. I have very vivid memories of that time and remembering that, you know, Leonid Brezhnev was the premier of the states, a uh, bigger pardon of, of Russia, Soviet Union, as I called then the Soviet Union, right? Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, you had Nixon and, and you had um, uh, Gerald Ford and, uh, gee, who was before Nixon? I'm just uh, to myself now. Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, right? Okay, so I don't have much many memories of Lyndon Johnson because that was that was sort of a bit before my awareness period, if you like. Um, but I remember Richard Nixon going to China, and I remember that being a big deal. Um, wow. Yeah, I do because the political, um, yeah, the, the government at the time in Australia um, was the Australian Labor Party, led by a guy called Gough Whitlam, who was very open to um, opening up relations with China. Um, and yeah, so uh, my memories of the time were that Russia was the evil empire. We were essentially 
told that people wanted to escape Russia. They couldn't get anything there. Um, anything like jeans or, or movies or, or Western goods had to be obtained on the black market. They had to wait hours for everything they had to buy. Um, it was basically like living in a giant prison um, and that people tried to defect every Olympics, you know. So um, the, 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 the messaging that we always got um, as a public was always that the Soviet Union or communism was, was terrible, bad. Um, so that was the f image we formulated. And as for China, we knew nothing about China, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, we knew very little about Russia and nothing about China. So it was definitely in that order. So the, the big one was Russia and the Russia's relationship with the US and our relationship with the US. So, I mean, I'm sure you know a little bit about Australian relationships with first the UK and, and then the shift during World War II uh, to the US as our principal ally and and protector, if you like, um, that shifted from the UK to the US uh, quite, it was a quite a big shift for us in World War Two. And then we sort of, we went to Korea uh, with you guys uh, in the 50s, uh, Vietnam, of course, in the 70s. Uh, so we've, we've been, you know, sort of um, right by the states and all those sort of foreign policy decisions they've made. Um, we seem to have grown a bit more backbone in the last 10, 15 years and tried to make some of our own decisions, but we've always sort of hitched our star to the US, if you like, at least over the last 50, 60 years. So in a roundabout way to answer your question, we were, I was very aware that there was this tension uh, between uh, the US and the Soviet Union and that if anything happened, uh, you know, we were in with the US. Mm -hmm. Well, it's understandable. I mean, with a total gross population of what did you say 23 million yeah that's a relatively small yeah population for such a huge country yeah correct so um and i i haven't checked i i usually look at what are the top five um gross national product you know what which countries have the highest gdp mm -hmm. um just kind of keep track of that uh and it's been, you know, because it surprised me to find out that Russia was actually dropped down to number 11. Their right. GDP is number 11 out of the top, you know, the top um, GDPs. But uh, yep. I haven't checked on Australia's, but I would imagine it's probably pretty, it's not uh, that high up there. No, 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 it wouldn't be. Um, just as we're speaking, I'm actually looking on the net now. We're ranked 13. 13, really? Okay. Well, so that's real close to Russia. And, that surprises um, me. Yeah, it does. It surprises me too. Uh, what What really opened my what really like was eye opening for me was to find out that Japan and Germany were so high up. I think they're number three and number four, aren't they? Correct. Yeah. yeah U.S., China, Japan, Germany, India. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and you can attribute. I, I don't know for sure, but I guarantee. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but I guarantee it um, that Japan and Germany are where they're at because of their relationship with the United States. Right. I, I would guess that that's the same with India because we've had a pretty close relationship with India for mm -hmm. at least the last 20 years, possibly mm -hmm. even longer than that. Um, and it just shows you the influence of the United States. It's just, uh, it's, uh, surprising to see that when you start looking at how 
everything is so interconnected all the all the um the different countries mm. oh absolutely yeah um and for us it's been the interesting thing right now is our relationship with china so mm-hmm. we've had this balancing act i mean i know this is not well i mean it's sort of semi-cold war related because it <laughs> seems to be another one going on at the moment yeah. um yeah well we've 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 got this balancing act between the u.s and our involvement and loyalty in a relationship with uh, the US and our economic relationship with China. Uh, so right now, uh, uh, yeah, the relationship isn't great. It's shaky between us and China uh, with the whole COVID thing. Else, okay, so the reason behind this, the, the sort of, we, we have a very strong economic relationship with them. And perhaps it's too, um, it's over, over-reliant to be honest. Um, but one of the big things we have is uh, international students. Uh, so a huge um, uh, import or export for us, I think it's classified as an export, is um, education uh, because a lot of international students come to Australia and it's worth a lot of money. Um, in fact, I think it's our second ranked export after mining, uh, which might surprise you to hear. Um, yeah, so that's sort of... that that relationship is is important to us as well because a lot of chinese students come to australia uh, yeah that that's that is interesting and uh it's a little bit alarming because of some of the other moves that china's making um within the um southeast asia and africa they're really starting to adopt an expansionist um agenda mm-hmm to where they're almost in the mode of early 19th century empire building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a little bit concerning. They're also beefing up their military, their Navy, yeah. their yep. uh, nuclear arsenal and their space uh, program. Their yeah. space program's getting really aggressive. Well, speaking of that GDP list you were talking about before, it's um, they are two of the bigger, uh, the countries with two of the biggest growth rates. Uh, so China at 6.9 and India at 6.6. So the, those country, those economies, which traditionally have not been big, uh, I guess when you and I were growing up, right, the Chinese economy, the GDP would have been probably ranked 102 or something. They were dirt yeah. poor from what I remember. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there were no jobs. Well, going back to your, your, your question from before, the, image, the imagery we did get, um, out of China was people on bikes. Do you remember those, those classic pictures you get for Shanghai or, or um, Beijing? And you, you'd see like 10,000 people riding bikes and you think, wow, okay, that, that's just such a, a different looking place. We, uh, but that's, they, they, they were the only images we got from China. We didn't get any news out of China. We got some news out of Russia. Um, and again, just going back to your Cold War questions, we had... Um, uh, a big thing in Australia called the Petrov Affair, where we had people, two people, this is a bit before my time, but it sort of shows Australia's history within the Cold War um, of some Soviet, two Soviet, uh, a Soviet couple, um, and they defected to uh, Australia. Um, and that was a big deal. That was in the early 60s, I believe. Um, but the other big thing for us, and again, before my time, but it, it certainly had um, consequences in terms of how, uh, it affected Cold War perspectives and, and, and the discourse around the Cold War was we had atomic bomb testing um, 
in Australia um, and at Maralinga and a few other sites in the outback. And this was British atomic bomb testing. And it was supposedly done in remote sites, but we remember pictures of this, uh, of soldiers watching it. You know, you, you've, you've seen those classic images in the States of soldiers with their hands up to their eyes and wearing goggles watching a, a bomb blast. Yeah, you know, those ones. And, and you always think, where are those guys now? And they're, they're more than likely dead. Well, um, there, there's a big um, controversy right now going on about that. Yeah. Because the... Um, they actually did simulations in the early, uh, I think it was the fifties while they were still doing above ground testing yeah. where American soldiers were hiding in trenches. And as soon as the bomb went off and the, the, uh, um, the shockwave came, you know, past them, they stood up and started marching towards the blast site. Yeah to see how effective they, they would mentally be able to um, function in battle on a right. nuclear battlefield. Right. The, uh, a lot of those guys, I think uh, close to 100% of those guys had all kinds of negative health complications. And for so many years, it was never acknowledged. Yeah. Correct. And yeah. so now there's a big push for the government to, um, to number one, acknowledge those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they're issuing medals and stuff for their service, for that particular service. And um, I think there's some financial reparations that they're, that they're starting to pay out to the families of those guys. Oh, there should be, shouldn't there? Um, yeah, yeah. And sure. uh, I, I don't know. I'm not up with the um, uh, the discussion around um, what has been done for the guys that would have been present at the the tests in Australia. I don't I don't know how many there are. I I don't know enough about it. But the tests were conducted in the 50s, um, and they were they were conducted by the UK. Okay, so our relationship still was close to them, even post-war, despite what I said to you about the shift to the US. So it was still a close relationship and has been traditionally. And so we allowed them to conduct nuclear tests in remote parts of um, South Australia and Western Australia. But, you know, it, it, it would have given zero, no um, recognition or understanding that these places would have been places of significance to our indigenous population. Wow, wow. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, uh, if, if you want to sort of go on. Uh, I was just going to say the the testing grounds here in Nevada, which mm-hmm. is about 50 miles north of Las Vegas, mm-hmm. is uninhabitable. I mean, it's so radiated yeah. that uh, you there. if anybody goes out there, you have to go with a, um, a tour group. And there's only specific areas where you can walk or you could stumble into a, a highly radiated section. Right. And uh, end up, you know, cancer or something, something yeah. worse. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you guys have some of that uh, residual radiation in those areas too, right? I be- Yeah, I believe so. I believe that those places where they conducted the test are still um, radi- irradiated. Um, and I-, I don't know if they're fenced off or if you can go in there. I'm mean, not that you would really want to, I guess, but yeah, I think, I think they still would be. Yeah. Do they still have any, um, any military locations up up in that area or is it like uh, uh, absolutely is it, is it so 
Okay. Oh, there are American bases in Australia. I mean, in so that in that area where they were testing. No, I don't think so. Okay. So, yeah. So the U.S. bases in Australia are up north, so that they uh, they you also get really good monitoring stations in Australia because of. Um, Okay, I'm not scientifically informed enough to tell you about why, but you, you get good um, astronomy and, and uh, electrical uh, monitoring um, systems coming out of the uh, remote parts of Australia. They've got clean air and um, good conditions for it. So the US bases are in remote locations in Australia. We, we, we don't know that much about them, to be honest. Um, really interesting. Uh, yeah. I would imagine it because they, um, like you said, there's clean air, there's very little light pollution. That's it. Yeah. So the uh, observation of a lot of those sort of things, you often see them as from observatories here because the light and the, the access is, is spot on. Yeah, it's really good. That brings up a question I thought about when you were talking about your, you know, your early days that you remember. Um, do you remember uh, watching on TV the Apollo landing? Um, I've got a really, really super vague recollection of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, the, the space program was huge, you know, yes. like, yeah, you remember that, right? So sure, sure. yeah, in the seventies, NASA was man, so exotic and so space age and, uh, you know, like it, the, the romance of the whole space program was really, really vivid for me and my brothers and we, we thought it was just fantastic uh so the whole apollo program was just yeah in the 70s that was a big deal if you remember right definitely yeah i, I was a huge uh, i mean i wanted to grow up being an astronaut that was, an astronaut. My, that was my dream yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 which i'm sure every kid did back in those oh god yeah days oh yeah an astronaut, yeah, for sure. But um, <laughs> the the reason I brought that up is because a lot of people don't equate the space race or the American space program with the Cold War. But in yeah. my mind, that was a key part that led to the end of the Cold War. Yep. And I could lay that out for you if you want, but I just wanted to um, see if you had remembered anything specifically from like when I, when um, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, I was three years old, yeah. but I have, I, I might, it might be a fabricated memory, but I, I do remember seeing on TV, the moon landing. Now, and it might've been a later moon landing that happened because they were televising all those moon landings for years. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I do remember seeing a moon landing on TV and, wishing that that you know i could do that someday i'm this exactly the same i don't know if it's a a video memory or if it's a real live me seeing it on tv memory i i can't i just can't recall um yeah i don't know but it was definitely on the tv in those days in the early 70s we we still only had black and white tv here mm -hmm. we only got if you can believe this we only got color tv in the mid 70s Okay, so well, my I memory... Think, yeah, I think color TV, even though it was available, I don't think a lot of people did have it because um, because it was expensive. It was like the newest technology available. Yeah. So we didn't have color TV <clears throat> when I was at that age either. Okay. Um, in terms of 
the, the Cold War, absolutely. Uh, you, you're right. The space race was very, very much um, one of the, but the, the central hubs of the whole Cold War, wasn't it? So you yes. had, yeah. you know, so if the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, and that was before my time and before your time, so that sort of peak um, episodes or events of the Cold War, I didn't quite get. And I was probably still a bit young for Vietnam, to be honest, although I remember it being on. But definitely the space race, because you know the whole thing about what the states could do and and what Russia was doing and and the cosmonauts versus astronauts. Yeah, they even had different terminology. That that sort of added to the romance of it, didn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, cosmonauts um, versus astronauts. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had to have a different name. And um, yeah, absolutely. I do remember. I, I very much do remember vividly um, the the Russian Sputniks. I mean, they even had different names, right? So this is Apollo program versus the Sputniks. So now that I, the more I think about it, um, yeah, it, it's now becomes even more sort of present to me that that was part of the way we were all thinking back then. And that was part of the, the Cold War landscape for sure. It seems like our um, rockets, uh, the different sections of our rocket program were named after Greek mythology. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, you know, the Apollo, the Titan. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the, the Russian or the Soviet program named their, their uh, programs after. But, but because of it, I think that that is what led to the downfall of the Soviet Union. I think okay. we, 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 we caused them to outspend their, beyond their means. And, and because of that, that was one of the leading reasons that the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah, absolutely. Because that program was forbiddingly expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For um, for both of both both countries. Absolutely. Were... But just to call it expensive is not doing enough justice. Is it? It was forbiddingly expensive. It was crazy, crazy expensive. I think you're right. Um, and I, I like I, the way not... you put that. Forbiddingly expensive. Yeah. Well, you know, that's probably the, the whole nuclear and and expansive military program is often forbiddingly expensive because the yeah, I agree. the cost. Uh, now, crazy. one thing I do remember from the Vietnam era, and I, I don't know if they had this program uh, worldwide, but I'm sure they did. When um, when I was about five or six, I think it was the early 70s, they had this program where you buy these wristbands and you would get a, um, it was either a, a POW, which was prisoner of war, mm-hmm. or a missing in action. Mm-hmm. MIA and yep. it would have the soldier's name on on the on the wristband and you'd wear that in as commemoration to okay. that soldier did you guys ever have anything like that no I've never heard of that that that's fascinating that's one of the things that uh, I, I just remembered it when you said Vietnam and we were talking about these early memories childhood yeah. memories I well yeah no I don't I, I don't remember that we didn't have that but uh, you know, so Vietnam ended in 75 and I think our involvement ended in 72, perhaps 73 at the latest. Um, uh, by then we had withdrawn, but, um, it was a big, it was a big deal. It was a super big deal. So in terms of being part of the whole cold war, um, context, um, in terms of fighting, well, the pretext was fighting against communism. Um, that was very much a present part of the media the news. Um, we had protests in Melbourne. I vaguely remember those um, anti-war protests. There was uh, 
protests going on here that are, uh, you know, I don't know if they are as violent and destructive as the riots that we're having now, mm-hmm. but they were certainly, uh, the, the media coverage was, was there. There were National Guard troops brought in, and there was one incident, and I'm going off of memory, so I can't, I can't say exactly which campus it was on, but there was a group of National Guardsmen that opened fire on some students that were protesting. That was Berkeley, right? It might have been. I think you're right. I don't remember precisely which campus it was, but I think it was Berkeley. Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure it was because um, I remember uh, – well, I mean, not I remember. We, we had nothing like that. There's certainly the protests would have got, in any sense of the word, violent only because police might have thrown their batons around a bit, but it, it, it never got to um, – being fired upon but that i i don't remember it i'll be honest with you i don't remember the berkeley shooting as a child only reading about it later uh i did learn about it later on um but i, I was just making that point because we had riots in the u.s um, yeah <clears throat> and it sounds like australia had similar protests yeah we did did, yeah. did they also have where uh the the soldiers coming home from vietnam were really uh, badly abused. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. were spit on and called yeah. really bad names. Baby killers. And yeah. Yeah, they were. So we've got Strange. this thing um, in Australia called um, Anzac day. And, and I know you're a military guy, so you, you would have heard of the, um, the notion that Australia and New Zealand troops are called Anzacs. So that's stands for the Australian New Zealand army Corps. So Australian soldiers as a sort of a general label in terms of a name are called Anzacs and um, uh, we have this thing called Anzac Day where they march Um, and every year on Anzac Day which is April the 25th uh, which commemorates our landing at Gallipoli in World War One it's a big deal in Australia really and it's become more so interesting enough as as time has moved on from the world the first world war Um, uh, and in Anzac Day in the in the 70s in the early 70s um, people would go to that and then give, abuse these guys. And um, the Vietnam vets weren't even, at the time, now it's different, but at the time the Vietnam vets weren't viewed upon as favorably by other vets, like the World War II and the World War I vets at the time. So they didn't even have, um, I guess, the, the respect of even other soldiers because the, the war itself wasn't viewed very favorably um, as World War II was. And that that's changed though since since then, right? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. The the whole view has shifted as we've become more uh, as as the view of the war itself has become more nuanced and and mature. Um, you know, we know that not everyone was over there um, for the wrong reasons. I mean, guys went there for the right reasons. Not everyone over there um, misbehaved or took um, part in events like, you know, Lieutenant Kelly and Miley, and um, that wasn't the whole war, which was the view at the time of what it was. Um, and also the fact that the rates, and I, I think the US is the same, the rates of suicide for Vietnam vets is the highest and is, is, is alarmingly high. I was going to say the highest of all vets, uh, but I think the World War II vets are, are dying off now. So um, there's not many other vets uh, to compare against is what I'm trying to say. Um, but the 
PTSD rates and, and the suicide rates in Vien amongst Vietnam vets is extremely high in Australian. I, I'm sure it's true for U.S. vets uh, from the Vietnam era also. But there is also an alarming rate of suicides from veterans of the most current conflicts right. that yep. we've had. Yep. And it's just it's such a tragedy because it doesn't seem like it needs to happen. No. You know, it seems like there would be a better way uh, to help those people reintegrate and be, you know, at least live with the the atrocities that they had to see and had to commit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, and one one of the things with the Vietnam era, which was totally unfair, that you know, in retrospect, it's easy to say that, but but it seems totally unfair because a lot of those veterans, at least the U.S. Um, military veterans were drafted. They didn't have a choice. Right. They had to go over there and right. they had to f fight for their lives in order to come back here. Right. And granted the, the reasons they were over there were some political reason that, you know, some people in Washington decided to send troops over there. Mm -hmm. They weren't there because they wanted to, you know, take over another country. They were there mm -hmm. fighting for themselves and for their brothers in arms. Mm -hmm. And then to come back home and be treated that way, it's just, it's just, it, uh, you know, and being a veteran myself, I don't appreciate the way those guys were treated at all. Oh, um, and uh, I 100% I agree with you. I, 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 it, it's not the individuals themselves who should be treated that way um, because it wasn't a decision. Um, as you say, for a lot of guys who were conscripted or drafted uh, to go over there. And we had conscription, uh, we called it the conscription here. Um, we had it too for, for Vietnam. I can't give it a percentage versus of conscripts versus volunteers. I, I don't know that, but um, they were conscripted. But it, it always struck me as being ridiculous to blame the individual when it was the government's decision to send them. Now, if you disagreed with the war and had a beef with the government, I get that. But the individual private corporal sergeant coming home, it's not on him. Uh, and these guys have just seen, and you know, you're a veteran. They, what these guys have seen is, oh, God, is, is, uh, no, it's the worst of the worst. It's nobody should see that. You can't. And for, for people to judge them and uh, belittle them, spit on them, you know, throw rotten fruit, those, those kind of things are unconscionable oh i i couldn't agree anymore and um one thing i do love about american attitude to service people is that thing of thank you for your service i love that i think that i love that expression i think it's fantastic and i've heard it being said when i was over there and i i really that really impressed me um i know not everyone feels that way but i know a lot of people do um and um uh, we are a bit more like that now in terms of our respect for service people, but haven't always been that way. Um, it, I'm, again, I'm probably more talking about the Vietnam and, and perhaps Korean War era. Um, and that's another thing that it's always, because I'm a bit of a military reader and history guy, as I told you in our sort of pre-discussion, um, you know, uh, discussion that you know the whole thing around career is the forgotten war right so in in some ways what those guys went through was you know in a way just as bad because they weren't even acknowledged right 
So I've, I'm always, I mean, our presence in Korea and Vietnam has always been something which has been a big thing here. And in terms of numbers, uh, relative numbers to American troops, we didn't send that many, right? It just, I mean, I think, I'm not sure how many went to Vietnam in the end. It might have been 30,000 or something like that. Is, was there an awareness that Australian troops were there or is that just not very well known? I did not know that that uh, Australian troops were in Korea or Vietnam. Really? I knew, uh, yeah, I knew of their presence in World War I because of the movie Gallipoli, which is wow. a great movie, but, I mean, heartbreaking. Okay. I knew they were in World War II um, because I just watched a, a, an excellent movie, which I highly recommend anybody to watch, uh, The Darkest Hour. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, that's on Netflix. I might, I've got to watch that. Yeah, and they they do mention um, the Australians uh, because they were there from the beginning. As I think, as soon as um, Germany invaded France and England declared war on Germany, mm. the Australians were there. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, we were. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I, I drifted a bit. As, as, uh, I was just trying to think of a, a movie I want to recommend to you in a minute. But yes, yeah, absolutely. World War II, we were there right from the, the word go. But the, uh, the next war was Korea. Yeah. And no, I did not realize Australia was in that one. Yeah. And then Vietnam as well. I didn't, Correct. I didn't realize yeah. they were there. Yeah, we were there from early 60s, sent advisors early on, and then troops later. And um, I just watched a movie... Oh, gee, what was it on? It was on one of the streaming. It might have been on Stan I, I, or could have been Amazon Prime. Um, it's called Danger Close uh, about an Australian unit. Um, and that was our biggest battle. That was our biggest contact of the Vietnam War. It was called the Battle of Long Tan. I, I read the book about that. It, it's, it was the, um, the special forces operative whose name escapes me. I, I think that was the action he was involved in. Um, but back to this movie, I, I think you'd really like it. Um, it's called Danger Close, um, the Battle of Long Tan. So that that's the uh, the battle it refers to. Um, yeah, it just gives a good illustration Australian involvement in Vietnam. Yeah, I'll watch I that like for it. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do like those kind of movies just for the historical um, reference. You know, I don't. The, I, I don't like to, I don't relish watching horror movies or movies that have heavy um, graphic violence for combat purposes. I don't, I don't really watch movies for that. I like movies like, well, two good movies I've watched recently are um, the one I mentioned, The Darkest Hour. Yeah. And um, another movie... Oh, goodbye, good night, and good luck. That was about the McCarthy um, era where everybody in the United States was under the, um, under the microscope for any ties with communism. Yep, yep. It's a good movie. Yeah. Very, very good yeah, okay. drama. Both the movies that I'm talk to, talking about are dramas, and that okay. seems to be kind of the, the more uh, – kind of movies that I'm interested in now other than, you know, the sci-fi kind of stuff. Like, um, you know, we talk about on the, the post-apocalyptic 
uh, group on Twitter. Mm. Yeah, I love I love that stuff. I love love anything history. Uh, yeah. Hmm. War, history, uh, apocalyptic, uh, sci-fi. Yeah, they're, they're the sort of, and when they all come together, you sort of get some really good stuff happening. <laughs> yeah. So you guys are uh, like 17, you said 17 hours ahead of us. And so it's yeah. Sunday morning, Sunday morning, right? Right. It's nearly 9am Sunday morning. Yeah. So I'm wow. talking to you from, I'm talking to you from the future. <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that, man? I always used to wonder before, I, I, I didn't realize you were that far ahead. In the early yeah. days of the post-apoc Friday uh, uh, hashtag, when you'd post stuff, and for me it would be like Thursday night. Yeah, and I was, <laughs> it's not even Friday. <laughs> Why yeah. is he posting? That? <laughs> I I I did not. You know, you'd think I would think of that because it's it's a worldwide group that does that. You know, you got guys everywhere. Um, and you'd think I would have thought of that until I started getting messages from Terry and. John and maybe even yourself saying, yeah, okay. Um, when it's Friday, I'll put something up. I'm like, oh, but it is Friday. <clears throat> and so <laughs> I started posting it up later and later, sort of 5 PM, 6 PM my time or even later to, to, to make sure it was at least close to Friday, your time. Yeah, no, it didn't, it didn't really bother me. It just uh, kind of gave me a little bit of a heads up since we've changed it where other people are, are um, putting the, the prompt up there. Yeah, uh, I've been late in po my posts. <laughs> I've been late uh, mo almost every week. I post on Friday, late Friday night, or Saturday mornings, or yeah. even sometimes a couple of days later. Oh, that's okay. As long as it goes up at some point, I think everyone's everyone's pretty pretty uh, pretty relaxed with our post-apocalyptic Friday. I think it's it's a great little institution. Right? Yeah, it's a great group, man. Everybody there is really active and really uh, supportive of each other. I know a few of them listen to this podcast and I can't say how much I appreciate that. Oh, it's great. It's great. Uh, your podcast to go. I love your photography. I wish you'd put more up. I, I, I really do. Cause it's exotic for, I think for most of us, it is exotic. I don't think you realize you're there yourself, you know? So when you see these things a lot more often than we do, it, it might become sort of second nature to you. And that's your, that's your normal. It's certainly not our normal. And when we see it, it's like, Oh, love <laughs> wow. I appreciate that. That I is do. encouraging. Oh, it's good. You've got a nice eye and it's, it's the great frame shots. Great. I love the color shots when you get those ones with the, the desert air framing the background to the shot. I love those. They're, they're great. Thanks. The, uh, the, the, the biggest struggle that I have now is because I've been to those locations so many times, finding something new to, yeah. to shoot, you know, and, and not regurgitating something that I've already done. I haven't been out shooting much at all this year. Uh, right. Most of the stuff that I posted recently have been stuff that I've shot last year and just had never processed. I've got a ton of archive work that I still have to process. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, now that it's starting to cool off, well, it'll start cooling off here in the next two, three weeks and I'll be able to get out and start doing some shooting again. Okay. Uh, but I'm I appreciate that, man. I, 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 you know, the, the encouragement helps. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you don't need any more from me. I mean, uh, you know, I'm quite open in my admiration for what you do. So both electronically and, and visually, so keep doing it. So let's get, uh, let's get back to. Um, 
but we could talk more about the Cold War, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about your um, your influences and how, you know, what what drove you to become a writer or an author, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that you work in education. Has that been something that you've always wanted to do? Uh when I was little, I, uh, well, you know, growing up, I didn't really have strong ambitions to go into education. My mother uh, was heavily involved in education, uh, my and, and and relations were as well. So we had educationalists in the family, and a, a writer. My auntie was a writer. Um, I've always been addicted to books, just addicted. Um, I, I couldn't tell you the number of books I've read in my life. It would it would run into the high thousands. I. I just the thought of being without a book to read, I, I can't stand it. Um, I used to live in Japan, lived in Japan for six years. And um, I used to have to catch the train a lot. And the thought of getting on a train without a book sent me cold. I couldn't just <laughs> stand there and, and, and be <laughs> trapped with my own thoughts. I, I needed a book. So um, my very earliest memories of books and being fascinated by books started with Funnily enough, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, and that was my favorite book as a kid. But then uh, combined with movies and in our era coming up, you know, I'm talking about you and me in the 70s, um, you had sort of a lot of Cold War influenced movies, which may not seem to have been Cold War influenced movies, but were. So things like Planet of the Apes and Soylent Green and, um, of course, the Mad Max movies, but big, huge influence on me was the uh, the Amiga Man. Oh, I love that movie. Right? I With totally, Charlie. yeah. And for years, I would make reference to that movie and people would look at me weird, like, what is that? Really? Nobody knew what that movie was. Yeah. You're kidding. No, no, 100% serious, man. Many, many people that I knew had no idea what that movie was about. Oh, that that was the capital T-H-E, the movie for me. So it was, yeah, me too. It was seminal. And you, you watch it now and it's dated a bit, obviously, you know, with the guys running around in black hoods and whatnot. It seems a bit a little bit funny now. But at the time, uh, it was the idea that this guy was the last guy. And I remember th- placing myself in that position. What would I do and where would I go and the freedom to move? And it, 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 it fascinated. I can't tell you how much that movie compelled and fascinated me and, and really drove what turned out to be long-term ambitions to write about it. Uh, Cause I didn't pick up you know, writing a book until relatively late in the piece. Uh, uh, I always wanted to write Andrew, but I just wasn't sure where to go with it and what the story could be. And I sort of formulated once I'd seen the Amiga man and silent green and, um, um, Planet of the Apes, again, was another huge influence on me. And then later on came Mad Max. And then the big one, the pivotal one for me was um, what in Australia, it was called Mad Max 2. And I know in the States, it was called The Road Warrior. So for me, it's always been Mad Max 2. And that 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 and The Amiga Man are the, the two pivotal and influential movies for me. And that set me on my post-apocalyptic thing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, you know, my, my influences were similar. I I loved watching Planet of the Apes as a kid. I probably watched that a yeah. hundred times when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, yeah, be- yeah. Before Star Wars came out, and then yeah, every, every every rerun, right? <laughs> every every time every movie or everything I'd watch after that had to had to be Star Wars. Yep. 
and then I didn't see Mad Max, the original. I saw, I saw The Road Warrior at uh-huh. a drive-in. Uh-huh. And I, I, I loved that movie so much, and I was telling my uncle about it. My uncle had not seen the movie, and he said, that reminds me of a movie that I saw called Mad Max. So I went, and I, I, I don't know where I, I went to look because we didn't have the internet back then. We had yeah. libraries and bookstores and yeah. magazine racks. But I found out there was a movie called Mad Max, had the same actor as the Road Warrior, <laughs> yeah. had the same car. It yeah. must be the prequel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, I think most people had your experience. No, nobody uh, would have been really aware of Mad Max, and then people became more aware of The Road Warrior. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm really interested to hear what your first exposure to Road Warrior was. We understood that when The Road Warrior first went to the States, it was overdubbed with US accents. I don't think so. I, I don't remember that specifically. I think it was the Australian original dialogue. Okay. But I saw it at a drive-in, so, uh, you know, maybe in the theaters they were doing the overdubs, but uh, but in in, at the drive-in, I think it was the original dialogue. Okay. Um, Certainly at the start, that might have been the case, but then I I think it was changed later on. Um, But I think people like you then discovered Mad Max (laughs) in retrospect or after the event. Um, And for me, Mad Max is uh is is a really really good movie but the road warrior for me just took it up 10 levels yeah i think the road warrior is a masterpiece there it's a it's a perfect film and it still holds up to this day i agree and um i was listening to another podcast called the projection booth i don't know if you're aware of that that podcast uh they do movies and they did a long one on the mad max series like it was a six hour podcast Mm, wow super yeah um Anyway, uh, they sort of, uh, I, I hope I'm not misquoting them here, but I think one of them talked about how dated Road Warrior was becoming and that it wasn't holding up as well. And I was thinking, remember thinking, I, I, I could not disagree anymore. Exactly. I, I, I think that movie has held up perfectly over the years. 100%. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I, okay, when you look at... The Road or the um, yeah, I'll call it the Road Warrior, Mad Max Two. When you look at that movie versus Fury Road, mm-hmm. there there is a distinct difference in the look of the film. I think mm-hmm. Fury Road is an absolutely gorgeous mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. just this beautiful, but it's full of visual effects. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's not taking anything away from the movie. It just has the advantage of the digital uh, visual effects that the um, the Road Warrior d- didn't have at that time. Those were all practical effects, real stunts, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of the stuff they did in, in Fury Road was also done practically and yeah, just enhanced visually or digitally yeah. afterwards. But, yeah, you know, in comparison, if you look at the two movies side by side, I would say Fury Road is a much better looking from a cinematography mm-hmm. aspect, much better looking film, but that doesn't diminish in any way the, the movie, um, the road warrior or Mad Max two. Well, I, I agree entirely. I think if you look cinema, 
cinematography <laughs> from a cinema cinematographical perspective i can't get the word out it's cinematography now uh, the of fury road is gorgeous as you say it's a great word to describe it it's gorgeous it's it's eye candy um that's not to diminish it it's not to damn it with faint praise it's it, it is beautiful it's a beautiful movie but um I, I I don't know what you think about this. What I'm going to say, I I, I feel Fear Road's a little bit over the top, um, in terms of that gorgeousness. It's a bit too gorgeous. It's a bit too, little bit too slick for me. Um, I I could see where you're coming from on that, uh, but that's a that's a point where a, a a movie lover and a fan of the franchise just simply has to slightly suspend. Your, yeah. your expectations yeah you know you you, you it's um it's where you you just you give it um you give it a pass on on that because it's fury road it's mad max yeah but i see what you're saying i yeah it is a it is a a little bit glossy a little bit not 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 too much but a little bit right so and if I compare it to the Road Warrior, the Road Warrior just nails it. It's not. It's gritty. It's it's, it's gritty, isn't it? It's, it's gritty. It's dirty. It's and, real. And, yeah. And it's the real. evil guys are scary. They are scary. Agreed. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like those guys out in the wasteland. I remember watching that as a sort of uh, okay, what a 15, 15 year old. I was scared. I would not want to have met these guys. Okay, no. I mean, well, I even found... even the guys from Mad Max, man, those guys were vicious. Man, they were savages. They were savage. Now, I it, certainly in Thunderdome, which, geez, let's not talk about Thunderdome. Those guys were just funny. They weren't scary at all. And then in in Fury Road, the War Boys, I equally didn't find them particularly scary. That was my other. They were not scary. No. They were not scary, were they? Right. So uh, in that... fact, uh, the the if you would, could call it that, the comic relief was one of the war boys. Yeah. You know, he was the guy that um, that came along for the ride. Right. Now, now he was no way threatening. So that were my two. Okay. So if we're going to compare those two movies, because the two in the franchise for me to compare at the highest level are Road Warrior and Fury Road. A, I found it a little, little bit slick, tiny bit, and we've talked about that. And B, I, I just no, none of the four movie, none of the other three movies have brought that sense of scariness or straight up evil that the um, that Humongous's crew did in in Road Warrior. The hands down, the Road Warrior. Okay, Mad Max Two. Okay. When I say Road Warrior, I mean Mad Max Two. Yeah, uh, that movie was almost on the verge of a horror movie. It was scary. Yeah. It was so yeah. scary. It was. Uh, it was. But but it was, it was also, I don't know because maybe because I was I, I think it came out in eighty one or yeah. was it eighty one when it came out? Yeah. Okay. Eighty one. Yeah. So I was fifteen, I think at that time, mm-hmm. fourteen, fourteen or fifteen. I was a teenager. Yeah. super impressionable i wanted to be mad max man he was oh. the coolest thing i had ever seen uh it, it so look i mean let's no matter what the guy's done since mel gibson 
in The Road Warrior and in Gallipoli. He was great because that's another beautiful movie. But then he he played that really well. Mel Gibson in in Mad Max Two was just perfect, perfect. He had the look. Um, I think he had a total of fourteen lines of dialogue. 14, really, fourteen had no lines. Idea. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 minimalist in every way. I I just think George Miller. Um, that he just absolutely nailed it. Nailed it. I agree. I think this is the longest movie review that I've done on this podcast. Okay. Oh God, I I, I knew this was going to drift drift into a lot of. Sorry, man. I knew it was going to drift into. Hey, no regrets, man. No no regrets, (laughs) because I love that movie too. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But uh, and it's obviously a huge influence in your own personal journey. Yeah. Uh, In in what ways do you think it it, um, it it did drive you to become a writer. Um, <clears throat> just that sense of, um, you know, the world has come to an end. That, that this thing of the post, the post-disaster um, life, not the disaster itself. I've never been that interested in the, the nuclear blast or the, or the viral outbreak. It's not that. I'm interested in... 20, 30, 40 years after it, what, what, what does the world look like then? So that has always been of really super big interest to me. The other sort of thing I've always been interested in is, and this goes back to Vietnam War, this, th- this notion of being overrun, the compound under threat. So it's that thing of, you know, the, the US fought out the middle of, you know, surrounded by uh, Indians. It's the, um, the Vietnam post being overrun, uh, in uh, what's that movie um, with Charlie Sheen? Oh, you know the one, the Vietnam movie, uh, Platoon. Yeah, Platoon. Yeah, okay. So where, they, where the yeah, great movie where the position gets overrun towards the end. Yeah, that huge battle. That thing of being overrun has always been really something that's resonated with me. The hopelessness of that position. So I tried to bring those two things into a story, which they are some central themes of the fall which I know you've, you've, you've looked at and you've read, so you'll know what I'm talking about because you've got the compound being overrun and, and the notion of it being two years after the event. So I tried to combine those influences in that book. That's what I was trying to capture. And I tried to overlay it with tech, which was the science fiction aspect for me. So my big influences, I'm, I'm like you, I'm a child of Star Wars, 1977. Watching that movie was like, oh my God. God, let me just pull my chin up off the floor. This is, this is a game changer. Um, so if I were to tell you the three game changing movies of my life, it would be Amiga Man, The Road Warrior and Star Wars. They, they just rewrote the rules for me, those books, uh, those movies. And uh, I think in terms of just fascination with tech and having tech in the story. So for me, my books are sort of a fusion they're not straight up post-apoc movies of post-apoc treatments like, say, The Road, okay, which is just post-apocalyptic. There's no tech in it. Um, mine has tech in it, so it's got that sci-fi angle or aspect. So if you ask me about those influences and how they led me to becoming a writer, A, if I combine my fascination with books and wanting to write and enjoying writing, and B, combining my influences, which were post-apocalyptic end of the world science fiction 
you can you can now see where I'm at. That that's where I got to because of those influences. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Was there <clears throat> was there a particular catalyst or a moment that you can look back to where somebody read something you wrote and said, "Hey, man, you have the gift. You need to do something with it." Um. Uh. Not. Not prior well okay so things i had written before like incidental things little things people always said i'd always gotten good reception to what i had written people had said gee you've got a nice way of expressing yourself you seem to be able to use words well and when i'm always been helping uh my children with like schoolwork, i'm able to write i don't write essays for them but if i was i had to write stuff or put things together i can do it fairly quickly. It, it's never been a problem for me. I can rattle off words very quickly and I can seem to put it together. You know, we all have our skills, right? You, you're, you're great behind the camera and you, you find angles on landscapes I wouldn't even dream of. I'd look at that and think, how does he do that? And you might read something I've written, uh, read something I've written and go, how does he do that? So we, uh, we all have our skills and now we do this sort of thing. Uh, but a pivotal moment for me uh, was when I had written a first draft of part of book one. Um, and it was time to show it to someone, get some feedback on where I was at. I showed it to my brother and it was a very pivotal moment. And he and I have very similar tastes in what we like to read and what we like to engage with. And, uh, I remember thinking, I wonder how he's going to take this and how will I take, how will I react to how he takes it? And he came back and he was effusive. He loved it. He loved it. And that was a real catalyst for me to move ahead. And I thought, okay, this has got some resonance. Um, if he'd come back and said, you know, Steve, geez, I don't know, man, don't give up your day job. I, I might've stopped there and then. Um, but he reacted to it really well. Still don't give up your day job because writing is a, yeah, yeah. a hard business yeah. to break into. We, yeah, know many, we know many authors that are out there struggling to yep. make a living. Yeah, correct. Correct. Um, no, I can't see myself giving up my day job anytime soon. <laughs> um, Especially, it sounds like a pretty good job. Yeah, I love my job. I love what I do. It's a great job. That's a, that's a great story. And uh, usually there is one or two moments where people, in the, in the creative endeavors, where people have had received some sort of encouragement from, from somebody that they trust. Yeah. Uh, and it's always interesting to, to hear who those people are. Some, a lot of people that I've talked to say their grandparents were very influential in their lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some people say their parents, other people say a teacher or, um, you know, it's, it's very rare that somebody says that a sibling was that actually a, a, a big influence on, um, on their decision to, move forward in creative endeavors. That's a, that's a different, a different take. Okay. Um, we're, we're relatively close in age. He's only a couple of years older than me. Um, and out of my four siblings, he and I have had the closest, um, uh, uh, our likes in terms of media, um, you know, the books we like to read, um, and the movies we like to watch are pretty similar. So he and I have always liked that, you know, war, sci-fi, um, yeah, they're, they're the big ones for us, war, sci-fi. And, and you know, um, uh, Cold War-related 
drama, so spy stuff. You know, we grew up on Bond movies and, you know, going back to your Cold War, um, the whole reason for this uh, uh, podcast, um, the Bond movies were a huge feature of Cold War, um, the Cold War era. It was certainly, you know, hyper-magnified, but it was the whole spy game, um, which certainly I think lost its relevance in the 80s and I haven't been as hooked into it um, uh, as I was, but certainly in the seventies with Sean Connery. And the one that I remember was, a uh, probably my favorite James Bond movie was Moonraker. Uh, and uh-huh. because, because <laughs> of the sci-fi element, you know, took place out in, in space yeah. and, uh, and you had the, that crazy bad guy, uh, was it with oh, the teeth? Was... He had the silver teeth. Oh, um, Jaws? Was it Jaws? I think his name was Jaws, yeah. Yeah, he called himself uh, Jaws. Was, was he in Moonraker? Or was he yeah. in a different... No, I'm pretty sure you're right. He was in Moonraker. So by the time Roger Moore took the took the reins... Okay, so here's the thing. And this, this sort of speaks to not my hate, but my lack of how I really just didn't like Thunderdome as the third installment in Mad Max, was that I felt it treated the franchise a bit flippantly. You know, like Thunderdome was not a comedy, but there were comic elements. Like, um, I don't know if you how familiar you are with Thunderdome, but there's a scene where one of the, um, the, the, the feral children, you know, the group of feral kids, how they've hooked up with Max. And in the chase scene at the end, um, one of them gets on top of one of the vehicles of, of one of uh, auntie's uh, minions and she's, he, he slaps the guy in the face with a fry pan. But when he hits him in the face with the fry pan, he does that Three Stooges thing of the eyes going, and I thought then, right there and then, come on, man, George, what are you doing? Mad Max is never supposed to be comic. It can have funny bits, but it's not supposed to be comic or slapstick. And I sort of had a similar feeling with Roger Moore um, on the Bond. When he took over his Bond, I thought I felt he treated a bit bit of... as a, a little bit of a joke. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I don't remember any of the James Bond movies that Roger Moore was in. Well, he was in Moonraker. Oh, was he? Oh, see. <laughs> it was James Bond. That's all I remember. <laughs> it was just the brand. <laughs> but the, the no, spy I, element is cool. I, I always enjoyed the, the um, spy movies. But... Uh, you know, and the gadgets and stuff like that. I always thought that was cool. Well, to me, when the Cold War era ended, to me, the Bond era ended because the two things were inextricably linked. Because the Cold War was a spy era. And so when the Cold War era ended, I just thought the Bond movies lost their relevance. So when it was, you know, Daniel Craig, which still is, of course, and Timothy Dalton and whatnot, it just lost its appeal for me because... It didn't have the relevance it once did. Like when in the 70s, when they were making those movies, uh, you know, so, some of that stuff would, would have been on the mark. Um, certainly in, in terms of how spies, not, not to that degree, not that, not that dramatic, obviously, but, you know, it was certainly parts of it were drawn for what was, for, for what was happening at the time. So we, we've ventured into a realm that I'm not that um, knowledgeable about, the, the James Bond franchise. So let, let's take it back to the three movies that you said were 
wildly influential to you? You said Star Wars, mm-hmm. Mad Max, or the Mad Max 2, mm-hmm. and the Omega Man, and which all three of those movies are great movies. Mm-hmm. But in what way do you think that those reflect the events uh, or influence of the Cold War era? Um, I think that idea of um, tension and good versus bad, um, you know, like, I'm not sure they made them this way. I'm not putting this out there, but I'm saying I can see it here that all three of those movies were almost, could be interpreted as being allegorical of the US versus Russia. You know, the apes were Russian, the bad guys, the, uh, the humans were American good guys. Um, well, I mean, you could take it that way. Right. Uh, um, and same thing in Amiga man, Charlton representing, uh, the forces of good doing what he has to do, because you certainly, you couldn't say in, in, in all respects, he was a good guy. Right. Um, and, and that the infected in Omega Man were the evil, the baddies, you know, the Russians. So, and if you've, uh, have you read the book, I Am Legend, the original book? Oh, that yeah. The, yeah. Okay. So in that book, there's a great twist in the end that in the end, um, <clears throat> Neville is the bad guy and the infected or the vampires in the book view him, see him as the bad guy. Uh, it, it's a really nice twist, which doesn't quite come out in the Omega Man, but um, Going back to your question, I can certainly see elements of Cold War tensions present in all of those movies. Not that, again, I'm, I'm at pains to say, not that I think they were made for that reason. Like, I don't think the Mad Max had any notions of Cold War representation. But I, I'm, oh, I, I can... Oh, I, I, actually, I think it did. And okay. I, I will... Um, I'll give you my take on it when you're, okay. done, when you're done with your analysis. No, I'm done. You go okay. ahead. I'd so, like to hear it. I think collectively it's hard to do a, a comparison because the, what I get from the, those three movies is uh, one man stands alone against an adversary against an overwhelming adversary. Right. Yeah. So that, that's what I really get from those three movies that doesn't really relate directly to the cold war uh, as a whole, but the Omega man has elements of radiation sickness well, you know, the, the, those, those uh, vampires, they don't look like vampires. They look like zombies almost. Well, that, um, that's the difference between the book and the movie. Yeah. There's, there's nothing vampire about them in the movie. Okay. Yes, yep. exactly. So the, the radiation sickness, they, they look like they are, you know, atomic bomb survivors. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus it's a post-apocalyptic um, film the whole thing takes place after civilization has collapsed uh, which is would be the result of a nuclear war mm-hmm. uh, so the nuclear element is how that one kind of equates to uh, or is influenced by the the cold war uh, star wars obviously the empire versus the rebel alliance good versus evil uh, where the soviet empire was an expand had an expansionist agenda um, they were trying to take over the world, literally. And um, the only thing standing in their way were the forces of good, which was represented by the U.S. and its, its allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, a, that's an easy um, uh, comparison to the movie Star Wars. 
And then with Mad Max, again, the collapse of civilization, but the importance of the, the petrol fuel, how, how critical oh. the petrol fuel was to the survival of the survivors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's what I equate to the Cold War because the Cold War was not just a, a conflict of ideals. Uh, there was a huge um, emphasis put on the importance of oil. I think you're right. <clears throat> I think you're right. I think you actually, you make a really, really good point. I didn't think of it from that angle. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And when I was thinking of the three movies, so, sorry, I, I slipped Planet of the Apes in there because that's the third movie I was thinking of. But in fact, you were talking about Star Wars. You are absolutely right. Star Wars, I think, um, is a, is a, not even a, not even a veiled allegory to the Cold War. I, I, I think you com- no, I think you're completely right. I think it is a absolute allegory to the to the seventy seven. It was made in seventy seven, so it would have been started in seventy seventy five, right? Seventy four. I think George Lucas would have been absolutely influenced by the by the period. And you're right. That was U.S. versus Russia veiled in a um in a under a sci-fi um yeah uh lens yeah absolutely uh that's just my take and i put a little bit of forethought into that um you know i don't know how i knew we were going to talk about star wars but uh maybe i had thought about this like many times before but the 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 one thing that I did put some forethought into was the, the Mad Max um, and how that, uh, that petrol fuel is such a, such a pivotal element of the movie. And it, it's also so relevant to the cold war. That, that was one thing that I really did put some thought into. I, I, I think you're right. And it also brings up my one single, single um, issue. With that, with with the road warrior. Oh, really? <laughs> Here it is. I'd love to hear what your take is. The, the, they call it the gasoline, right? The petrol yes. becomes absolutely pivotal. In it's like gold, and everyone wants it, needs it, and that's the reason that Humagus and his horde are there is to get the petrol. Yet they spend most of their day using up what they've got by right. going around in circles around the compound. <laughs> My brother and I could never, we're like, hang on. Here's the thing. Cause I've thought about that too. I'd love to hear your take. Cause I, I need an answer on this. What my take on that was they were so confident that they were going to achieve their goal of taking over that refinery. Yeah. They didn't care how much fuel they spent intimidating. Right. Intimidation. And yeah. And, yeah, and playing that psyops against yeah. their foe. Correct. And, and so the obvious allegory there is the, you know, even the compound is circular, right? So it's the wagons in a circle with the Indians. It, it is. It, that, that's yeah, exactly what it is. It's, yeah. it's the Apaches on their horses running circles and war whoops and it's intimidation. It's scaring. I mean, I know why they do it, but I, that, that was always the only minor level. And I, I, I stress it's minor. Um, uh, illogical part of it, but it wasn't, I guess you're right. It, it's about intimidation and they were so confident of their end game that they didn't mind how much of their fuel they used. Yeah. Still great movie. Uh, I still love that movie. I still watch that movie whenever I think about it. Like I'll probably go watch it 
in the next couple of days. I, I, I do. My, my, <laughs> my, <laughs> the last time I watched it was about a month and a half ago. And my son came down the stairs. He goes, oh, dad, again. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> how old oh, are your how old are your kids uh my oldest boy is 20 nearly 26 um and he lives out of home uh our second he lives here he's 23 and our daughter our baby girl she's nearly 18 pretty close in age to my kids and uh, you got any still at home uh two yeah two the two youngest and the middle daughter has a, a son and he lives with us also Great. My grandson. Yeah, he's oh, awesome. Oh, that's brilliant. Fantastic. Happy to hear that. Uh, but they do the same thing. I, I really like to watch um, documentaries. Yeah. And they just roll their eyes when they see me watching documentaries, especially if it has to do with um, like uh, Stalin or the space race. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I find... And I, I don't know, I now can't explain my hesitancy when you put out the calls to ask people, you know, who wants to come on and have a chat with me. I don't know why I was hesitant because in fact, when I, uh, when I look at this, it's an era I'm really actually very interested in and, and quite well read in because I read a lot of books about the communist era and about certainly the Stalinist era and um, the whole Ukraine famine period, uh, which I find uh, un unbelievable um you know this guy makes hitler look like a choir boy and uh well he did and if you look at the numbers um stalin and, and Mao Zedong were, were way 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 worse in terms of how many how many people died under their watch they, they were just a level of insanity that's hard to comprehend you know which you think could probably only exist in a communist context couldn't it in that dictatorship well, they, context yeah they would only be uh i mean I, I think there are psychotics uh that are in leadership within the democratic countries but they don't have the ultimate control that these guys had you know yeah. the ultimate control of being able to make a make an order and have Correct. it carried out yeah, and especially now. So you think back then there was you know no social media, none of that instant transmission of knowledge. That if that stuff was happening now, it's it's known like literally seconds later. Whereas, pardon me, in those days they could they could hush it up more. Even China has such a a control on their media um, that 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 message might get outside of China, but it's not going to get into the masses where people are going to be able to rise up because of their frustration and, and anger at what's mm. going on. You see, when they, yeah. when you control the media, you really do control the masses. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the danger of it, man. That's why, you know, social media has to be kept open source, free available, freely available, you know, and not, not heavily regulated or, um, What's the word when they suppress your, your right to speak? Uh, censored? Censored, yeah. Censorship yeah. has yeah. got to be eliminated um, because there's, there's too much, um, you know, too much that can happen if you censor one side versus the other. Right. Yeah. 
but I, yeah, I don't want to get into politics, man. I, I hate discussing politics. It frustrates me beyond belief to hear people try to throw in my face what their beliefs are politically. Uh, I'm happy not to. <laughs> and I, yeah, I do, I do not want to do that to the listeners of this podcast. But w- one thing you did say that I wanted to uh, expand on, the, um, the hesitancy you had for coming on the podcast and have a conversation with me, uh, I hope the people that listen to this will open their mind and understand that we don't talk about just the cold war yeah. we try to tie in the cold war with 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 pop culture right with science uh definitely have heavily into military yeah. um you know how how it's affected our our current day and how it's going to affect our our future because mm-hmm. i think there still is a heavy influence of the events of the cold war I, I guess it would be the aftermath of the Cold War that we're living in now, and it's it's going to continue on into the future for decades, possibly even generations. Well, you know, we might be entering another one, so uh, and we may already may already be in another one. Just I different. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I still think uh, I uh, I completely agree with you. I, I think it's still super relevant. It's not a thing of the past. It's still influences our decisions and our discussions and, and our perspectives today. And I think it's only going to influence them further in the future. Yeah. Completely agree. What about uh, music? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you obviously seventies music mm-hmm. was heavily disco and then you had um, the psychedelic rock yeah. like Led Zeppelin and um, yeah. the doors. Well, the doors uh-huh. was really a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. But what uh what kind of music did you listen to? Um well it's interesting because um and you're probably going to laugh. Um the type of music I was into like when Mad Max came out the late 70s very early 80s I was right into heavy metal. Okay? So I was uh, I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath so because my brothers did. Okay? So I wasn't out there buying those records myself because I was only like 10 or 11, but they were. And so I was listening to them and they were my first influences. So I loved, loved the heavier rock side of things. And so then as I started to get my own, you know, buy my own music, I was buying Iron Maiden and uh, Judas Priest. And, and then I got right and still am, st- still am into Rush. I love Rush. You lo- I, I, I thought you would. That's why I thought you'd chuckle when you heard this because... I well, no, I, I remember when Neil Peart died. You put your, um, you put your icon. Devastated. Okay, so when you're talking about influences, he was actually a huge influence on me. Huge influence on me because, in fact, a lot of his early songs were sci-fi influenced. Yeah, so, yeah, 2112 and um, a lot of the longer part songs were, were very much sci-fi fantasy influenced. So at the time, I was reading a lot of... Um, fantasy so the chronicles of thomas covenant i'm not sure if you're aware of that but um lord of the rings and um a a lot of these longer drawn out um fantasy epics and he wrote uh songs which were influenced by those so that was what i was in at the time so um heavy not that i would classify rush as heavy metal because they weren't but um heavy metal uh rush was certainly a major influence on me and the twin influences of the music itself and then the lyrics behind them, I thought were just like, God, again, game changing because I wasn't hearing anyone else doing that. 
And I really loved the sort of the outsider nature of Rush, you know, because of Geddy Lee's voice certainly didn't appeal to everyone, but I loved it. And they were never really a big mainstream band. They certainly were not popular in Australia. Um, I think okay, when you say mainstream, you're talking about radio play right. top 10 uh, yeah. because they had a fan base that was equal to any other heavy metal yeah. band that oh, was yeah. on the planet. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, mainstream, it, it, they were underrated, but as far as their fan base goes, their fan base was second to none. Well, if you, uh, I don't know if you've caught, you, you've got Netflix, haven't you? Yeah, I've got Netflix. Yeah. So you got to, have, you, have you watched the Rush the Rush documentary on Netflix? I think I've only seen it three or four times. I, I probably should have to watch it again. <laughs> oh my god, what a stupid question! If you wouldn't mind edit, editing that question out in post production, I'd appreciate <laughs> That's it. Okay. Okay. So you've watched it, and uh, it does give that really great perspective on what you just said—that dichotomy between non-acceptance by the mainstream and even almost ridicule from mainstream press. Who thought they were a bit of a oh, joke? It, it, it was ridicule is is the perfect word because if you look at some of the reviews by writers, by you know music re- reviews by the the people that wrote about music, they were mm-hmm. making fun of Geddy Lee's voice. They were, yeah, uh, and the lyrics but, and the whole yeah, direction the, of yeah, the band. Yeah, right. Yeah. The the lyrics was you know it, it was the stuff of fantasy, but it, they what they didn't understand is how it appealed to so many people, how, how it resonated with so many people. The other big influence on Neil Peart was Ayn Rand, who was a... Yeah, that's right. I think she was Russian. I could be wrong about that. But, and then she was, a, 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 was a, again, this speaks to your Cold War, okay? So what she wrote about was a lot of anti-Soviet stuff um, uh, within her writing. I haven't read a lot of her works. I've read a couple. Um, uh, Atlas Shrugged, I've read, and that was heavily influential on Neil Peart and his writing. So, you know, a lot of what uh, some of the stuff, you know, like Anthem and um, those works where the theme was, you know, live for yourself, there's no one else more worth living for. It's that idea of the individual me. Um, and he disavowed that a little bit later. He said, oh, you know, that was me as a younger, <laughs> um, different sort of a guy. But I, I found not so much those philosophies influential because I, you know, not, weren't necessarily that way inclined, but um, what he was writing and the fact that the band was out of the mainstream, I loved all of that. I thought it, it just spoke to me very directly. And I loved that era of Rush. I wasn't so much into them when they went a bit synthetic or synthesized a bit later on. Um, I was more sort of into the moving pictures, uh, 2112 era. And I, I loved, loved that stuff. Moving Pictures was one of the first albums that I bought myself. It was brilliant, 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 brilliant album. The the one thing that we didn't mention, but has to be mentioned anytime you talk about Rush, was their musicianship. Oh, These guys were their musicianship was perfection. Oh my god! They they, they were so tight that uh, you know, and, and well, of course, the drumming. You know, that I think Neil Peart was named drummer of the year so many years running and uh, the, the greatest drummer of all time. Well, to me, he was. I mean, I'm, I'm technically, I can't tell you from a technical perspective, I can't name the elements that would have made him a great drummer. But just to me, uh, he, oh, 
just listen to what he does and what he does with a beat. It was never straightforward. It was never it was you know like god the fills he would put in and 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 then you combine it with how good a bass player getty lee is and how just to listen to alex lifeson all you need to do is listen to la villa strangiato to know exactly what sort of a guitarist that guy is and and see that's that's one of the things that coming coming up and being a fan of rush I always heard Geddy Lee, you know, one of the greatest bass players of all time. Neil Peart was one of the greatest drummers of all time, if not the greatest. Mm-hmm. You never hear anything about Alex Lifeson, but right. you listen to his riffs, man. That guy was incredible. He was just overshadowed by his bandmates because they were so perfect. Well, I, I think you're right. I don't think he does get the credit he deserves. And I saw... And not that these things are the be all and end all, but I saw a ranking of rankings of bassists and, and, and drummers and, and, and guitarists. I think it might've been Rolling Stone. I can't remember, but I, I think they had Neil Peart at number four. I reckon it's four positions too low. But... Ah, they're so wrong. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about, but they uh, had Lifeson, I think at 93. I'm like, come on, that just the proficiency of this guy was again. I would say, well, just because of my, appreciation for him top 20 if not top 10 oh agreed i i just thought technically what he could do on a guitar just seemed to me to be incredible incredible well like you said i mean that that one song you referenced la via strangiato i think is what it's Mm -hmm. called yeah so many guitar players who could be classified as top of the top cannot even play that no and they'll admit to it. <laughs> they'll say yeah. that's one of the hardest songs to to you know to try to play. Well, they it, they had a very hard time recording it because it's so technically difficult uh, that song, and it's like eleven minutes too. So it's not it's not a, it's, it's a not beautiful a short song. song. It's beautiful. Oh my god, that band. Oh gee. And so they were they were very 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 influential on me. Yeah. Yep. Well, and easily connected to the Cold War because easily, they started yeah. during that, that era. Yeah, yeah, uh, correct. I think a yeah. lot of their music was influenced by the struggle between good and bad. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's easily one of the best bands of all time. Easily. Uh, I was heartbroken, too, when I when I heard of Neil Peart's passing. Oh, uh, I, I don't believe in living life with regrets because... You can't change the past, but if I, if I do have one regret, it's that I never um, got to see Rush live. A because I never toured Australia, but I, I would have, you know, if I if you if you had your time again, I, I'd find my way over to North America or Europe and, and see. They never I, toured Australia. No. Wow, no. that's surprising. Yeah, um, I don't ever think they had much of a fan base here. Like, you know, if I went out in the street, <laughs> even like in the 1980s and said, you know, Rush, I don't think many people would know who the heck I'm talking about. So um, they were not big here, uh, but a friend of mine introduced uh, them to me and I'll be forever grateful to the guy because uh, they were, and look, I was doing painting yesterday for about five hours, just painting the house. And I've got my Spotify, you know, you, you got Spotify, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got Spotify and I've got a few hundred songs on it and the songs which come up most frequently 
are by Rush because I've got the most Rush songs on it. And, uh, oh, man, I just love it. Love it. Yeah, yeah. So I think we gushed about Rush. <laughs> <laughs> Russian Mad Max. We could do quite, a podcast, you and me, on, yeah. on Mad Max and Rush, I think. Exactly. Um, Maybe we should. We could. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm open to it. Shoot. I, you know, right. in, in the era of podcasting, uh, you know, there's, there's no limits on what you could talk about. And if you think about the, um, the rule that most writers have to live by, you don't write for an audience, you write for yourself. Correct. And you, you know, I mean, you do it because you love to do it. You don't, you're obviously talking to somebody when you're writing, you're not really writing a, a letter to yourself. You're writing for somebody to read it eventually, but you do it because, um, because you love doing it. Well, it's interesting you say that because people have asked me in the past, you know, who did you write the book for? Why did you write the book? And I said, I wrote it because that's the book I want to read. Ah, cool. Okay. So fundamentally, I, well, one of my big influential books that I read was by a guy called Justin Cronin called The Passage. It's a post-apocalyptic trilogy. I, I think you'd like it. I think you should read it. It's called, um, oh, I think you should read it. What am I saying? I think you'd like it. Um, it's called The Passage by Justin Cronin. And it's got similar themes to what I explore in, in, in my books. But um, that's the closest book I've read to a book where I said, that's the book I would like to write if I could write a book. Okay. So my fundamental motivator for writing a book um, was to write a book that I would like to read. So I, my first audience was me. If you, yeah. you know, you, you have a built-in audience. <laughs> yeah. I like <laughs> it. Therefore yeah. it's successful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. As long as you finish it. Right. Correct. Yeah. Um, but that's the way I feel about a, the podcast. You know, I do this because first and foremost, I enjoy having these conversations with people yeah. that I, you know, they, this is the first time you and I have ever talked. And I knew we had some things in common because we've been on Twitter together for mm -hmm. what, about two years, three years now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I knew we had some things in common and I knew we'd hit it off pretty well. Cause we've, we've always, you know, been, um, shared similar interests uh, yeah. from our exchanges on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But to, to find out just how deeply those, those interests yeah. are connected. It's parallel, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. And if nobody listens to this, I don't lose anything, <laughs> you know, cause it's, it's fundamentally for you to enjoy. And exactly. I, well, I love talking about this stuff and I can, I uh, similarly, I, I know that you do cause I, I, I sort of garnered that we do have very similar interests and we grew up in similar eras and exposed to similar things with it within a, I mean, the American culture and Australian culture are different, but they're very similar in many yeah. respects. So it's not surprising. Well, I, I would love to visit Australia someday. I don't know if that's going to happen, but. Yeah, uh, you, well, you're always welcome. Would love to, would love to see you. Now, similarly, I um, would love to come uh, to that part of the States. I just, Oh, if you do, I got some, I got some awesome places to show you, man. Okay. <laughs> and and that invitation is open to anybody who comes to Vegas. I'm, this is where I live and I know all the cool spots, but if you're into nightclubs and, and that kind of stuff, I'm not into that scene. So no, 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 no. I'm, I'm into exploring the wilderness yeah. and you know, those kind of things. 
I'm not in, it's safe to say I'm not into nightclubs now. <laughs> I could take you to some of the dingy parts of town where you might not really want to go, but would be <laughs> quite interesting to visit. Urban exploration? Yeah, that would be. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. So I think that's about all that I had. I wanted to ask you, give you an opportunity to tell the, anybody who's listening who might be interested in picking up your books. How could they find those books? And what are you working on now? Um, okay, that, that's, that, that's a, a not as easy an answer as, <laughs> as I'd like to give. Um, I, I've said uh, at the moment I've, I've taken them down from uh, Amazon because I'm, I'm looking for an agent and I just want to give them... Uh, I, I'm trying to find representation at the moment and um, I think it sort of complicates things if it's published somewhere else and they want to have a, a fresh go at it. So if there's any agents listening to this, I'd love to hear from you. But... Um, so at the moment they're not available, but um, if that angle, if that line doesn't work, I'll, I will certainly republish them online. Um, and I've taken a bit of a break from writing at the moment as I try to sort of pursue this notion of getting traditionally published. Um, but I will, when I pick up the metaphorical pen again, if I when I take to the keyboard, which will be soon, um, it'll be book three of um, the fall. So I've written book one, I've written book two. Um, and I will write book three, which will bring it to a, to an end. That that's that's where I'm at. Was it intended that way when you started it? Yeah, yeah. I always saw it as um, uh, I talked to you about my reading influences before. And I, when I read something I really like, really really like, I, I don't want it to end. I want to immerse myself in that world for a long time. And that's why I loved, for example, the Lord of the Rings. Um, that's why I loved, well, the initial Star Wars trilogy. It gives you that extended exposure to that world and you can escape in it and you can be a part of it and really immerse yourself in it. And that to me is very powerful. And so I knew that when I wanted to write something similar that I would like to read and I wanted to create a whole world and immerse myself in it for an extended period. So that's that was my thinking there. I respect that you are trying to get published at a professional level or, you know, outside of self-representation. Mm-hmm. But if somebody really wants to read your book, can they send you an email and request yeah. a copy for say five yeah. books or something? Yeah. If they did want to reach out to you, I know that you're on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, but give people your, your handle on Twitter and any other way that they can get in touch with you. Um, okay, so my Twitter handle is at um, St Campitelli. So my writing name is St Campitelli. And it was funny. I, I had to laugh when you, when you wrote in your email. I didn't know your name was Steve. Like, of course, why would you? Uh, I always thought it was St. Correct. Everyone calls me St. And no one's ever called me St. In my life, I'm, on, I'm only St. On Twitter. It's so funny. That's um, funny. Yeah, so my name is Steve. Feel free to, to use it on Twitter. I, it's not a secret. It just sort of turned out that way by accident that I became ST. Um, so at ST Capitelli. Um, and my email is stcapitelli at gmail.com. So absolutely, if anyone is listening and would like to read um, the books, I'm happy to be in touch with you and and organize um, for you to get those by uh, Moby file, which is uh, Kindle um, compatible. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Cool. Very, very happy for that to happen. So I'm just going to throw a guess out for what the T stands for. Don't tell me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that it's your dad was a huge Star Trek fan and he named you after Captain Kirk and gave you the middle name of Tiberius. 
<laughs> I would so love to say you're right. <laughs> oh, wow. Being named after Captain Kirk and in turn a Roman emperor would be wonderful. Um, Thomas, Thomas, something far less romantic, Thomas. Oh, that's still a good name, though. Strong name. Still a good name, right? Stephen Thomas. So um, I just went with the. Yeah, I, I, look, I didn't pick ST to sound cool or anything. It wasn't sort of any endeavor to be like J.K. Rowling or, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien. It wasn't, I, I honestly didn't attempt to sort of grab a pen name which tried to sound like a famous author or anything. I just, I'm not sure why I went with ST because I'm not ST in any other sphere of my life. That's why it's always been funny that I've been referred to as ST on Twitter because um, no one else calls me that. Uh, but that's my identity there. Yeah. Well, is there, I mean, we've, we've touched on a ton of things. Um, I don't think we left many stones unturned, but we certainly have room to talk about stuff on a future podcast. But for this episode, is there anything you'd like to say or anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, I think, as you say, we've touched on a lot of things and I really appreciate something you said before that this podcast is not, you know, like when you think of uh, the Cold War, you think of the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? And Kennedy and, and, and Khrushchev and whatnot. And it's so much more beyond that. And it's so influential on pop culture and modern culture and our way of thinking and the movies, as we've discussed, and the books we've read and the music we listen to, that it's the Cold War is far, far, far wider reaching than... Uh, than, than I think we give it credit for. And I, I only say I was hesitant to come on, not because I didn't want to come on a podcast. I, I'm more than happy to. And I love talking to people like, you know, to people like you who've got these interests. Uh, it's it's great. I love it. My only hesitancy I, I felt was that I didn't have enough cred um, to come on and, and discuss this stuff. But now that I think about it, um, having lived through that era of the 70s, um, it's very, very prevalent and present in my life. The the way you put it just now, it kind of encompasses what the podcast is about. It's not just historical facts, you know. It's not dates and names and events in, in sequence. You know, I'm not trying to test people how knowledgeable they are about these things. I just want to have a conversation with people that I have, an you know, that might share an interest in in these topics, and it does mm. encompass. It, it encompasses multiple generations for starters and it it touched every aspect of our lives. Like, a, you know, you and I started off talking about military um, endeavors and then we touched on the space race and a lot of people don't even equate the space race to the cold war. Yeah. Yeah. Or movies, how, how movies were influenced uh, by the cold war. Right. And it just touched every corner of so many people's lives and that's really what i'm interested in i'm hearing interested in hearing people's personal stories and how the cold war touched it even if they weren't born during that era the cold war still affects the this current generation and future generations and i want to hear yeah uh, you know yeah. I, I would love to hear how that um affects those people well the it you know the the cold war officially sort of pretty much went up to 89, right? 91. Well, 89 is when the Berlin Wall came down. 
Ninety-one, oh, 91. is when okay, Soviet 91. Union collapsed. No, you're right. Sorry, ninety-one. Correct. So that's if you're sort of thirty-five and older, and the, I think most of the people that you and I run with on Twitter are sort of um, of that vintage. Well, they are right. So um, then it, it it has affected you. So. You're so polite, man. <laughs> I, love that. I love the way most of the people we run with on Twitter are of that vintage. <laughs> We're a bunch of old farts, man. <laughs> well, I think they I hope they are. I hope I <laughs> no, they are. You got, you got John Leonard. He's, I don't know how old he is, but he always talks about how old he is. Yeah. Um, at Terry Tyler. She's Terry, old, I know. You know she, she said she's around I think she's in her age, 60s, but. Yeah. You know, we're a bunch she's of old so cool. people. She is so cool. Hanging hey, out with social media. Because, uh, <laughs> I hope she's listening to this because she's she's so cool. She's so uh, she's great, man. All the, everybody in that group is, is oh, awesome. Are. That is a great group. Great yeah. Group. Uh, and, you know, when I put the, the call out to anybody who wanted to come on and talk, um, I would love to hear Terry's voice, you know, and um, just to just – I don't really care if she sounds weird or grouchy or whatever. I just want to hear what her stories are, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that goes for everybody. You know, I'm just using Terry as an example because she was really adamant about not coming on right. and talking on a public forum like this because she doesn't like the way she sounds. And um, a- anybody out there listening to this that has anything to say, about any of the things we've talked about. I would love to have them come on, spend some time with me. And, you know, oh, get, get your voice heard, get your story heard. But I, I, just going back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about this, the, the, the wider applicability of the Cold War theme, I think that's become so much more evident to me that people will have a lot to say about it because the, the influence still is being felt today and that if people were hesitant, they shouldn't be because... Uh, you're easy to talk to. Um, you're interested, and I think that's another good feature about you: is that you're obviously interested in other people and what they have to say and what their opinions are. And a lot of people aren't good listeners. You know, they um, quite often uh, seek opportunity to talk, to turn the conversation to themselves. And I, I always appreciate it when people are good listeners. I like to think I'm a good listener, and um, I, I think you've got that quality. And this type of podcast is evidence of that. Cool. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That, uh, again, encourages me to continue doing it. But uh, uh, I really do it just because I, I have a sincere interest in hearing other people's stories. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I am not a big reader, uh, which is something that might surprise people. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have a ton of books, and most of them are not completed. I've read like the first couple of chapters or there's a few books that I've finished, but the majority of the books that I own, I have not finished reading. Okay. And it's just because I get, I don't know, I get so distracted. My mind is always thinking about other things. So I'll be on a paragraph and I'll be midway through a paragraph and I'll forget what I was reading because <laughs> my mind is thinking about something else. It's is that weird? Off, racing off elsewhere. Um, I, I, I won't call it weird because everyone's got the way of dealing with the uh, things they like to deal with. Right. So for you, it might be a more visual thing. You might be a, I mean, cause you're into photography. So you're obviously a visual guy. So for you, it's the movie. Um, uh, and I love movies too. And, but you know what I mean? Different stimulants or different stimulations are, 
uh, different for different people. So for me, it's the book. So f for example, my all th well, two of my three kids, they, they don't get turned on by reading. And yet they've had intense role modeling from me about someone who reads in front of them all the time. Um, yet my daughter, she says, she, she just gets distracted like you. She just wanders. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. I, I find myself getting, things, people. Uh, you know, when I've had to read a paragraph two or three times, then I have to put the book down and come back right. to it because I don't know. I just have a, uh, an unquiet mind, I think. And that's a nice uh, way of putting it. I like that. An unquiet mind. Wow. That's so poetic. <laughs> I have so many things going on in my mind and I'm thinking about so many different things at once that, you know, even if a book is interesting to me, um, I, I'll, I'll get stuck on a paragraph. I'll reread it multiple times and then I have to put the book down and come back later. When okay. I was younger, I wasn't like that. I would read nonstop constantly. I'd read two or three days. I would read a book two or three oh, days. Okay. Yeah. Um, but as I got older and had different uh, inputs, you know what? I guess it might've been when I discovered the internet. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. It's that notion of, uh see when i start getting on the internet and start looking at things you start tangentializing you start going off in different directions it's like a rabbit hole isn't it yes and i think you're right i think that has been influential on people's reading habits because they expect to be able to go off in a different direction very quickly and very easily yeah yep and i'm i'm bad about that i'll be on the internet and looking at an article or something and i'll see a link to a, a video Boom, I'm over to the video and then I'm back on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I can see how that happens, yeah. Um, but you're right, I am a visual person. So it's it's easier for me to see. And it's, sometimes I can't even sit through a two-hour movie. Unless it's Star Wars. And I'll tell you, I've got to, I've got to say something before we go. I, I love the fact that you reference it as Star Wars, not A New Hope. Because oh, no. to, me, to me, it's always that 1977 movie is Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. And it'll never be a new hope for me. No. That, that, that's solidified our friendship now. <laughs> well, we, we've agreed on a lot and I, I totally agree with you on that one. Yeah. So, hey, m many thanks for you coming on and spending so much time with me and sharing for having me. so many experiences. Pleasure. And yeah, you are welcome to come on anytime something pops up that you want to talk about. Again, appreciate you coming on and spending so much time with me, Steve. Um, I look forward to having you again in the future. And uh, thank you for coming. Okay, man. Look, I'll let you go. It's been great, great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, I will talk to you soon, man. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Talk to you later. See you, buddy. Bye-bye. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. So join me, and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture, and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this program, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. 
You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening.